welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox, and wow, it is already the beautiful month of May. Although I, I think maybe a little different spring than many of us anticipated. Because what is this, day like 320 of, of quarantine? Well, it feels like it anyway. Luckily, we have another great guest for you to take your mind off of that. But before that, I, I need to let you know, this is actually the last episode of season two, which is hard to believe. So that means I need to tell you about season three. Originally, the plan was to take a bit of a break over the summer and release new episodes in the fall. However, I think due to the COVID-19 pandemic, people can use something to listen to now more than ever. So the Bandroom podcast will be continuing throughout the summer. And man, oh man, do we have some fantastic guests for you to hear from. And they are Dr. Robert Taylor, Director of Bands at the University of British Columbia, Dr. Leah McGray, Director of Instrumental Studies at the State University of New York at Genesco, Mr. Peter Gallant, award-winning music educator and audio engineer, and also the guy who got things started for me, my first band teacher, composer Elizabeth Rahm, Dr. Eric Leung, Director of Bands at Oregon State University, Ardeth Haley, award-winning music educator, arts education consultant, adjunct faculty at Acadia University, and co-founder of Music Mentors with Dale Lawness, Mr. Colin Clark, conductor, clinician, and adjudicator extraordinaire, our first returning guest, Dr. Jillian McKay, Director of Bands at the University of Toronto, and it should be noted that that interview is going to be a special Bandroom Podcast live interview coming to you from the Ontario Music Educator Conference happening in London, Ontario in November. Fingers crossed that it's still happening. Composer Pete Meekin. And last but not least, Dr. Wendy McCollum, Instrumental Music Education Specialist and Director of the Symphonic Band at Brandon University in Manitoba. So, I don't know about you, but I am very excited to share uh, their insights and stories with all of you. So before we get to today's interview, though, please do me a huge, giant favor and head over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts like this one and give the Band Room Podcast a rating and a review. Why, you ask? Because this helps get the word out to others. We need to spread the band gospel, my friends. I'll mention this story in the interview. But I first encountered today's guest, Mark Hopkins, as a high school student performing at the Atlantic Festivals of Music in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and to be honest, was rather intimidated by him when he walked in the room. It wasn't until I worked with him as a conducting fellow with the Dennis Wick Canadian Wind Orchestra that I fully came to know and appreciate him as a conductor, mentor, and now friend. I'm always amazed to watch him work, his knowledge, his humanity, and passion for bringing out the best in students and professionals alike is an amazing thing to witness. As you'll hear me say at the end of the interview, when I'm feeling creatively low, I don't really don't know what to do, I get on the phone with Mark, or as I like to call him, Mr. Ideas. His passion is infectious and is an instant inspiration to me. I know you'll get a lot out of hearing about the ups and downs of his story, the amazing people he's met, the amazing things he's done, and how he's persevered through those ups and downs to be one of the best in the biz. This interview was a lot of fun, I must say, and there was a lot of stuff I had to leave out unedited 
this interview was two hours and 30 minutes, and I, I had to cut it down to two hours. But there's so much we left out. His time in Banff, studying with Steve Chenette, his arranging projects, which I really encourage you to go check out, some of them on his website. Uh, his new works that he's commissioned, including a, a new work by Derek Healy, which is slated to premiere in October of next year. Hopefully, it still happens. His work with the Wired Chamber Ensemble, which I've also linked to their recording in the show notes. Many awards and the joy and excitement of leading the National Youth Band of Canada last year. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Mark Hopkins. miles apart but technology brings us together i i am here in the virtual band room once again with dr mark hopkins so welcome to the band room or what we think it is anyway thanks Tony. it's great to be here and uh i must say i'm i'm this is very nerve-wracking for me although out of any of the guests that i've had this season uh i, I probably know you the best but um mark is a, is an interview expert because he uh, is the longtime interviewer for the Canadian Winds Journal. So, actually, some of these questions I might have stolen from your Perfect. previous Perfect. your previous interviews. Uh, so, what better place to start uh, an interview than at the beginning? So, uh, Mark, where did where did you uh, grow up and and get your your musical beginnings? Um, I grew up in Scarborough before it became not- notorious for. Um, for violence and gangs and stuff that seems to have happened in in the last while. It's still a great place, but Scarborough was a borough of Toronto and it was a time before Toronto was amalgamated. So the boroughs acted very independently of, of the city of Toronto and each had their own board offices and each had their own suite of, of administrators that ran things and their own ways of doing things. Um, I attended um, St. David's Anglican Church, and the first musical things that happened for me were um, were singing. And uh, as a soprano, as a boy, from the time I could practically walk, I was in the choir. And within oh, wow. a short while, I was um, one of the soprano soloists. And I got sent for four summers to Trinity College in Port Hope before I was, just after I started school, before the I guess I was in grade three or four. I'd been going to sing in four-part harmony all summer in in this uh, Toronto Diocesan Choir School. Oh, yeah. And I never really thought about that much. But, <laughs> you know, you just do what you, you don't, you think everybody sings in a choir and you just do what you do. But when I... Th- when I've uh, been doing reading as a music education person, you realize that the earlier that switch gets flipped, the the more profound... Lee, one may be able to hear. Now, I'm not saying I have any great ears, but I'm just saying that was very early, very profound experience for me. Being in Scarborough was was really important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Scarborough Board of Education started the first itinerant teaching program of its kind. And um, my first band teacher was a guy named Miles Hearn, who played French horn in the Toronto Symphony, little did oh. I know. I found that out later, <laughs> yeah. a decade later, that he was a heavyweight, but he was looking for extra income, and he took one of these part-time itinerant teaching jobs. And uh, I remember being given the seashore 
measures of musical audiation test. <laughs> and that's how they determined if you were going to be allowed to be in the band program or not. If you can imagine, I know that it, it was a pull-out program. I know there were kids who wanted to be in it who weren't allowed to be in it because their hearing mm. wasn't as strong. And I, and I, I struggle with that to this day. Um, yeah. One of the first things I do for my music education students when I have them in the secondary music ed class is I give them the Gordon measures of musical audiation test. And then I never tell them their score because <laughs> some of them would be crushed by the understanding of where that, that score places them. And I would like to suggest that that's not the reason we teach music, you yeah. know, like I, I, that's the main take takeaway I want them to have. Yeah. But anyway, I got this start on French horn actually. And then I switched to trumpet somewhere oh, in grade four God. or five way back when. <laughs> And uh, when you talk about Toronto, I, we really, you know, we went to church and we lived in Scarborough. There wasn't a lot else going on right. for me um, musically. But then uh, somewhere around grade seven or eight, I went to, I bugged my parents like mad and went to Scarborough Music Camp for the first time. And it just opened, it lit up my world. It was an amazing thing. Um, shortly after that, I joined the Scarborough Schools Orchestra. I think it was in grade nine or 10. Low man on the totem pole trumpet player. Donald Coakley was the conductor. Wow. And it was it was great fun. I I, I was uh, speaking to some folks yesterday, some of the Dennis Wick Canadian Wind Orchestra conducting fellows, and Don was on the line. I managed to get to get Don to come in and talk to them about <laughs> yeah. Lyric Essay, which they were studying. And he reminded me that I was the guy who played uh, trumpet on the premiere of the orchestra version of oh, Lyric cool. Essay way back when. So yeah. Dom was trying out all of this stuff. I was the first one to play the Bonavist Harbor trumpet solo. I, I didn't know what was going on. I just, you know, here's some music, I'll play it. Right. So yes, that was really important. Um, and, you know, and, and if we talk about early inspirations and early influences, there's no doubt in my mind, Don Coakley, without his influence, I simply mm -hmm. wouldn't be doing what I do. Um, he just kept on throwing stuff at me, you know, right. Capriccio Italian, trumpet and E, you've got a B flat trumpet oh. kid, figure it out, you know, right. that kind of thing. And it was yeah. great. Um, yeah. Wow. Cool. Very cool. And uh, you, you mentioned Don and you've mentioned Miles. Was there any other influential teachers that you had growing up that kind of inspired you? There are a number of really great people. Um, when I got to grade nine, um, they, pushed me right through into grade 10 music, drove my sister nuts because <laughs> she was a year ahead of me and I kept on showing up in her classes. It happened in English as well. I got advanced. They just skipped me through a year. I don't, they don't do that anymore. I'm glad. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was an interesting moment. And the guy who was teaching the music class was a guy named Stan Elliotson. And um, he taught in Scarborough for a year and then he's a trumpet player. And then he moved on to, uh, um, I believe he went up to... Blue Mountain area to Collingwood area for the rest of his career. But um, he was the one who said, so you think you're a good trumpet player? Have you heard of the Royal Conservatory? Mm -hmm. And I hadn't heard anything. I didn't really know anything about that. I just played. And uh, he told me there was a system of exams and things. So when I was in grade nine, I did my grade four trumpet exam with his coaching. Oh, yeah. the, f the fun part about that, Dylan, is that I found the certificate just rifling through a drawer <laughs> the other day. And the signature at the bottom is Stephen Chenette. Hey. He was the examiner of that yeah. moment, which is just strange. Yeah, probably <laughs> one I of many. Yeah. 
one of many full circle moments. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Um, I have to also mention I had some anti-heroes at this time. Oh, an anti-hero. Every story oh, yeah. I had, I had a, a circuitous path is the only way to put it through the <laughs> into- my, all of my musical experiences. Um, he, this is maybe emblematic of the rest of everything that happened to me as I went through. Um, I was going to a school called Wexford Collegiate in Scarborough and had a pretty amazing jazz music program and other kind of music programs, but there was a real emphasis on pop and jazz music and I was all in. Um, We hosted the second or third national finals of the, what was then the Canadian Stage Band Festival at my high school. Um, I met Phil Nimmons, again, very strange because I, I played a, a Nimmons chart when I was in high school in grade 10 mm-hmm. and Phil Nimmons and nine plus six did a CBC broadcast from our high school stage. It was, you wow. know, there were, there were these crazy things going on and it was very exciting. Um, but, but I, I digress. Anyway, there was a moment where I had a, a disagreement with the person who was the music teacher there <laughs> and he, um, he kicked me out of music. Wow. Now, I'm not sure if we don't want to edit this entire segment because <laughs> I don't want to say kids war with your teachers. And, and it wasn't like that. It was a it was a commitment question. Um, right. And I followed. I asked my dad what I should do. I did what I thought was right. It obviously wasn't right for him. And he asked. He just said, you're not going to play in any more ensembles. And uh, I was kind of crushed by that. Okay. So I transferred. I changed schools and I went to Stephen Leacock, which was more of a quote unquote classical oriented Mm -hmm. school. Um, And it was the best thing that could have happened to me though. At the time it just, it felt like this is, this is the running commentary on everything I've done. I, I, I go in full burner (laughs) and then I, I realize, well, maybe that isn't going to work. Right. And I usually have to hit the wall before I realize that. I wasn't very, I'm getting better, I think. But, <laughs> Going through you know, it now, I, good. I, just full on whatever I was <laughs> doing and then realize, wait a second, that may not be the best thing. Mm-hmm. I have to adjust the path that I'm taking. So um, I went to, uh, to Stephen Leacock and I met a guy named Richard Humphrey okay. who uh, eventually went off and I think he taught at Bethune. Oh, he's a, he was a principal. Uh, vice principal, then principal at Bethune. And I think he's recently retired. He was in his first or second year of teaching. Okay. And uh, I I met Richard and we immediately got put in a brass quintet. And in that, and I'd never played brass quintet before. And Mm -hmm. in that quintet, a year older than me was a guy named Ron Parker, who's a tuba player in the Toronto area. And a French horn player named Diane Fair. Um, some, Some really excellent players who've gone on and had you know, interesting and exciting careers. And again, like, I just didn't know. I just sat down and played quintet music with these guys. And it was, it was fantastic. Right. So that school turned out to be the place where everything stuck. And uh, I graduated high school from there. And along the way, um, there was a woman working with the Scarborough Schools Orchestra at that time named Elaine Sargas. And I played a solo in something um, with the Scarborough Schools Orchestra. And afterwards, she came up and, and basically cornered me and said, you have to study with Larry Weeks. Wow. And I didn't have a teacher at that time. I didn't really know about this. I think I was in grade 11 at the time this happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, 
come down to the Toronto Symphony. My husband plays in the Toronto Symphony. Come to the Ontario Place Tunnel. She told me exactly where to meet them. And she stood with me there. And as Larry came out, shuffling out, carrying his double Bach trumpet case, um, she stopped him and introduced me to him. And I started studies with Larry Weeks thereafter. Oh, wonderful. Went right to the top. Well, I was lucky. Toronto, yeah. you know, this is the joy of living in a place like Toronto. Um, yeah, it, Larry was, was a great teacher. Um, mm-hmm. Very different, laid back kind of style. Um, he wouldn't say a lot. He would play for you every once in a while and you would just want to sound like him in every mm-hmm. possible way. Um, he helped me prepare my first audition, which again, I was lucky was successful. And I played in the Toronto Symphony Youth Orchestra as well as the Scarborough Schools Orchestra until the two were just too busy and I couldn't yep. continue both. And uh, that was with Victor Falbrill. And, wow. you know, I remember figuring out the transposition for Debussy Fetz, <laughs> you know, like for the first time. And it was, it was, a, it was an exciting thing. It was um, a great city to be in. <laughs> I've just read that. Isn't that awesome? Oh, yeah. Well, I haven't read it yet. I know this is useless for our podcast, this format, Sorry. but we're um, holding Walter up a book. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I, I have just read that, and it's so interesting because, again, you get to understand musical Toronto in a very specific period of time. Mm-hmm. And Felper was my first conducting teacher um, wow. at U of T in my undergrad. It was really? pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say was, so. He was great. Um, yeah. And just so, like, again, I... I can't stress enough that that I just feel fortunate to have been in the same room as many of the people I got to be with mm-hmm. and work with. They um, they were generous and they 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 shared a lot of yeah. of expertise, but also just approaches to things. Most of the time, when I'd be really stressed with something, they just say, "Said it, nah, forget about it, kid. Try yeah. this." You know, it was just <laughs> so simple, so um, direct. They the thing that they would not brook is a lack of effort Mm -hmm. you know like the work ethic was was drilled into me very very early from these folks and i was typically lazy at times and larry would would threaten me to you know i won't see you anymore if we if you don't pick that up and you know that would get my attention when i was in my teens trying to figure all this out but i was very lucky end of story (laughs) end of story period done uh but um and I guess, especially this time of year, whenever, you know, people are deciding where they're going for school and what they want to study, what, what was kind of the moment that you decided, hey, I want to do this music thing, you know, maybe for a living, I want to go study it in post-secondary. What was that, that impetus? There was, um, it's funny, Don and I, Don Coakley and I talked about this a few days ago. There was a... Uh, a performance by the Scarborough Symphony Orchestra of um, Sibelius Symphony Number no. Two, and I just remember going through the whole performance, and it felt like just a few minutes for the first few mo- for the first three movements, and then we get to the final movement with this glorious trumpet theme that enters, you know, it sounds like God on high himself <laughs> arriving, which is, you know, the way trumpet likes to be. It's the way we like to feel as trumpet players. Yes. And I remember just looking out at all of this and seeing everybody rowing in the same direction, trying to make this, this moment come to life and thinking, this is really cool. And I, I remember thinking, I wonder if 
like he does that for a living. Maybe I could do something like that for a living. Right. It was, it was just, it, but it was a very real moment to me where I just sort of heard the, the call and said, you know, this might be really fun. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that symphony was full of really interesting people. Um, Dave Longnecker, one of the bassists in the Toronto Symphony, was in that group at the same time. There were a whole slew of us who went on into music thanks to our experiences right. in, in that group. So thank you, Don, <laughs> for everything again, <laughs> for yeah. everything that he, he provided. When it came time to audition and I had to decide what I was actually going to do, my, my dad is a high school math teacher, retired. Um, he's a mathematician with an engineering degree and an MBA, but he found his greatest joy teaching in high school. He oh, yeah. started down one path and again, I, I saw very early when I was very, very young, he went back to school and changed careers and became a teacher. So there was a very specific uh, compromise that took place there where he wasn't all that thrilled about me going into music. Okay. In fact, I might have done an audition, told my mother, but not him. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's what happened. I'm yeah. pretty sure that's what happened. Yeah. Um, and I'd been accepted into uh, an engineering track okay. at U of T at that time. How, I don't know. My math was terrible. But anyway, <laughs> it felt terrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did this audition. And at the audition... Um, Steve Chenette asked me why, whether I was going to go for music at a performance. And I said, music education, because that was going to be the compromise in my mind. And I, and I, it's, it worked out okay that if I was going to go to school for music, mm-hmm. um, music education meant I would have something to fall back on. Classic. <laughs> so I, I hate that because uh, there's that implication that there's going to be failure and you are going to fall back. Mm-hmm. But there's another part of it which was really fortunate. And that is that, um, that I actually equally feel passionately about the, the teaching part of things and the performing part of things. And that, that foot in both worlds kind of thing has been sort of the, the marker for the way, the way career has progressed. Um, so yeah, I, I started a music education degree at U of T and I found out partway through that Frank Armatis and, Armantis and Gord Sweeney, who were first and second trombone in the Toronto Symphony, had been roommates doing a music education degree at uh, Indiana University. So it wasn't like it was, you do music education, you don't play. Right. And for me, that was never the option. Yeah. I wanted to play as well as anybody else who was in that studio. And it was a pretty monstrous studio, too, at the time. Yeah. I remember, I remember last summer when I was at your house and you uh, whipped out a CD of... Uh... <laughs> And just seeing the players that were on the list at the, like at the same time was kind of astounding. It, it was a really exciting moment, a great time to be there. Yeah. And um, this is, I'm going to, I want to go off topic a little bit, but not really, because this, sure. this is, this might, this is a hot take. We might get, we might get um, argumentative emails sent to the band room podcast. Do you get but, those, uh, Dylan? Do, they, do you get no, argumentative? No? I, someday, I hope. <laughs> that means okay, well, people are listening. Let's see what happens. Because <laughs> um, I'm wondering, and I've never really discussed it with many people, but um, the correlation between being a trumpet player and then going into conducting. I know. What what did you what do you think is there? Is is there any connection? I think it's pretty clear, don't you? Something to do with the ego? 
huge amount. <laughs> okay. And I actually, uh, I think that there's, there's something about, um, first of all, trumpet is deceptive. It looks mm -hmm. really easy and it is really easy to make certain things happen, but mm -hmm. to play that repertoire and to play it flawlessly, the, the mm -hmm. orchestral repertoire, for instance, to, to, to play at a certain standard. Um, I, one of my trumpet teachers when I was doing my master's work was a guy named Howard Engstrom, principal mm -hmm. trumpet of the Calgary Phil for many years. Fantastic teacher. Maybe like after I studied with him, I became a better pedagogue and teacher all around. Mm -hmm. um, but he told me that there was a, a statistic that he found. Um, his dad was an Air Force test pilot. And they found out, for instance, that left-handedness in the population, the general population, is something like 16%. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., something like 70% of their pilots were left-handed. They, they didn't really have a reason for that correlation. They couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. Howard had a theory that there's just a certain kind of mind that loves the trumpet and loves to take the minutiae and shave it off and perfect it and polish it and shave it off and perfect it and polish it. And I think in the, in the I, I guess all of our, our colleagues in various instruments would agree that that's what they do. Mm -hmm. But man, you are just, you are exposed when you are playing <laughs> in, in an orchestra or in anywhere else. There is, yeah. it's just like you're, you're here and you have to, to share what you understand, your best understanding in any given moment. And I think we get comfortable being on the hot seat. And I think it takes a certain kind of ego to walk into a room and be, you ever been in a room full of trumpet players? Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. It's almost like going to Midwest and being around all those conductors. It's, just, <laughs> it's a, a crazy thing. Yeah. You have to well, have a certain confidence. I yeah. Leah, well, I, this once again, useless in this format, but Leah McRae last year showed me the Midwest handshake, which was, how are you doing? <laughs> she is so Shake awesome. and look for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a thing. Um, I think if you're going to stand up in front of a group and suggest you, you know, you have an idea of how this music should go and you look mm -hmm. out in the group and there are people with 20, 30, 40 years of teaching behind and, and performing mm -hmm. behind them rather. And, and you're trying to tell them what to do when you're a kid, you, you have to have some confidence yeah. in your own yourself before that works. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll get this train back on the tracks here. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it wasn't my fault. It was, I, I chose. Uh, so um, so, so a, after U of T, um, did you go right into teaching? I did. Uh, finished, um, I finished my Bachelor of Music at University of Toronto mm -hmm. and went down the road to University of Western Ontario, which is what it was called back in the day, mm -hmm. and, um, and did my Bachelor of Education. And for me, it was... I went, before I did that, I was, I was all set to go to University of Toronto. It was closer. It was at home. Mm -hmm. I could commute like I'd been doing for four years from Scarborough to downtown Toronto and do that thing. But on the suggestion, again, of Ron Parker, who has been a really good friend for many, many years in, in these kinds of topics, I went out to Western and spent a day in their classes. And I remember distinctly they had um, a guy named Jim White, a trumpet player himself, um, lecturing about the, uh, the, the structure of a board of education and how there is a superintendent and then there were regions of schools and, and this is the role of the principal and who has their hands on the budget for, and I remember thinking, oh, that's really interesting. I probably need to know that stuff. <laughs> and I then went to a University of Toronto day of classes. Mm -hmm. And I can't, 
I don't want to say anything disparaging, so I'm not going to, but let's just say that it was, it was less rooted in what I thought I needed next, which was mm-hmm. nuts and bolts practical applications of the teaching I'd been doing, or the, rather the learning I'd been having all the way through. So I went to Western and it, these things changed. They moved back and forth, but it was really great to get out of the pond I was in mm-hmm. and find a whole group of folks that I'd never played with or worked with before. And while I was there, I got to play on a bunch of recitals and played Bach cantatas I'd never played before and and uh, even played in the uh, London Youth Orchestra just okay. to keep keep the playing thing going, which mm-hmm. was what I was worried about missing. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience too. After that, right into teaching. And in my first year of teaching, I also became principal trumpet of the Mississauga Symphony Orchestra. Okay, yeah. So I was doing this big circuit of driving and rehearsing till 1030 at night and then getting up at six in the morning to start teaching classes at seven something, you know, or teaching ensembles and leading ensembles. Mm -hmm. And I loved all of it because I had a foot equally in the world of, of trumpet and playing. It wasn't a full professional orchestra at that time, mm-hmm. uh, but they had paid principals and yep. I managed to win one of those jobs. And I felt really happy about that somewhere down the road when they started paying principals. But right. it was, um, it was a, it was a, a, just a great thing to be playing that music and then going back and teaching. And, mm-hmm. and that shift back and forth was, was really important for me because I never really, I still don't see the, um, the separation between being a music educator and being a musician. To mm-hmm. me, they're part and parcel of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that, that was kind of where that started. And I had a, a lot of luck with, um, with teaching. It worked out really, really well. Um, the kids who were teaching, the students at Milton District High School um, were mostly bused in community. Okay. So um, I switched the, uh, the um, jazz band rehearsals to Sunday nights. So Sunday they would nights. have to all drive in. And, and we had this big music room, a pretty decent space actually. Yeah. And uh, I, got to, um, I got to work with this, this jazz band in particular that just took off. And um, by the second year that we were, um, by the second year that we were working together, we were being invited to the Nationals and Music Fest, or which was Canadian Stage Band, yeah. or maybe it just become Music Fest around that time. Oh, okay. So this is in the early '80s mm-hmm. happening, and uh, I love those kids. I would have done anything for them, and mm-hmm. you know, I know I still hear from some of them to this day. It's kind of fun, and I, I know that we 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 both met each other at the right time. At least it felt like yeah. that to me. Yeah. Well, it's funny because um, after I finished my master's at U of T, I ended up con- being the music director for the Milton Concert Band. Right. And, and whenever they read my bio and who I worked with, they saw your name and, and people were coming up to me telling me how they would remember you from when really? you taught. Yeah, for That's real. Hilarious. I'm not even making it up. <laughs> no, but that, that is hilarious. I, I would yeah. love to connect with some of those kids again. Yeah, Somehow. it was like uh, Sherry Cameron. Oh was my a horn, goodness! Horn player. Yeah. Yeah, and then after Milton, uh, you were off to Oakville. Yes. So started out in rural. Milton was a real, was still a small town then, so that was rural high school, part of the Halton Board of Education, and then um, moved to uh, Oakville Trafalgar High School. In both cases, I followed a um, a composer, a guy who's a composer now. Um, 
when I was in teacher's college, um, John Herberman was the music teacher at Milton District High School. And he wanted to become a composer. So he took a year off to just try his hand at the composition thing. It was one of those four over five Mm -hmm. years off things. And when he did that, um, he needed someone to run the jazz band. So I was driving from London, Ontario to do the jazz band while at Milton District High School while I was doing my, my Bachelor of Education. When the job opened up in Milton, um, it opened up because John Herberman had moved schools from Milton District High School to Oakville Trafalgar High School. And I was very fortunate to get his job at, at uh, Milton District. Okay. When John left Oakville Trafalgar, his job opened up at Oakville Trafalgar, and I was very fortunate to get. So for a long time, I I want I wasn't sure if I could ever get a job unless John Herberman had it before me. But I was I was lucky. Eventually, that was proven different. Yeah. So I went to Oakville Trafalgar, and it was it's a a very wealthy suburb of of um, Toronto. It, it's not it was not really a suburb of Toronto in the sense that it it, it was further out than any anyone would consider a borough of Scarborough or of Toronto rather, but it, it, it was a, it is a wealthy community and um, a very different kind of student. Um, And again, I, I just loved every second of what I was doing there. We, uh, we, I started taking trips. We went to to Boston and performed. We actually went to new Orleans and uh, performed at the, my jazz band performed at the heritage uh, jazz festival in, in new Orleans at that time. And, um, and I remember taking my groups to, uh, to Mohawk College for Music Fest Canada regionals and, and they, were, they were doing very well in those settings. And it was, it was a huge amount of fun. John wrote us uh, a couple of compositions, John Herberman, mm-hmm. and we got to do those um, for him. And that was, again, an, uh, an exciting thing to do. And it, it really, piqued my interest um, in mm-hmm. composers and, and commissioning, which is something that I, I've, I've been doing pretty much ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that uh, whenever you, uh, we talk about your university um, positions. Um, and, and then after, after Oakville, nine glorious years at Upper Canada College. Well, that's very interesting. So um, Uh Uh I was at Oakville Trafalgar and I knew I wanted to do graduate studies. I'd wanted to do it right out of university, but I, um, I didn't really have a model to follow. So Mm -hmm. I I ran into a guy named Wayne Jeffrey over the years. We'd worked at national music camp together and, um, and Wayne had, had taught at, um, Oh my goodness! I can't believe I'm I'm blanking on this. Uh, a really excellent music program in uh, in the Toronto area for a, a long period of time. Gosh, I can't believe I, I I can't remember it. Anyway, he then went off and got his doctorate at at Eastman, mm-hmm. and he was appointed in this time to the director of bands at uh, the University of Western Ontario, and he was coming to Oakville every week to lead the Oakville Youth Orchestra. Okay, so. I, I managed to get a chamber music program going alongside that. And I basically went to every rehearsal I could and tried to, to learn as much as I could about what he was doing. There's this direct blend of, of being a musician and teaching at the same time. And it was an incredibly important and instructive thing for me to do. So 
at some point while I was Oakville Trafalgar High School, I decided that I wanted to go back for a master's degree and music education seemed like a natural fit. I mean, I was teaching music and um, education was a big part of my life, but I also wanted the performance aspects of things. So I took a year off from, while I was still teaching at, at Oakville Trafalgar High School and I moved to London and I became um, a student of Wayne's. I also mm -hmm. studied trumpet with Eric Schultz, the late yep. Eric Schultz while I was there and took all the courses and did all of the coursework necessary, in fact, to have a master's in music education or yeah, master's in music education. And it came time for the paper, the, the, the um, thesis component. And I was assigned a, a thesis advisor who wouldn't let me do a performance style document. That is, I want, I didn't, I wanted to do something that was going to be about the practicalities of being a music educator in, in the schools. Mm -hmm. And the, the goal for this person was that I should be more philosophical, a little more removed from the entire process. Mm -hmm. And we never agreed. So I paid tuition for a year when I, when I <laughs> left and uh, paid in part of another year's tuition and finally just left it hanging. Right. Never finished the degree, done all the coursework, but no, no final product. Okay. And that was, again, very disappointing because it felt like failure. Mm. And really what I, what I learned from that is something I talk to all my students about now when they're talking about what they do next. And that is, that is the idea of best fit. You know, there's, there's, there's got to be a fit between the program that's being offered, the people who are offering it, and the kinds of opportunities you're going to get through that, that experience. And it, I learned that the hard way. I thought I had everything lined up, but I, I, I didn't understand as much as I thought I did before I went in about what this degree at that time was going to mean. I know that it's evolved tremendously since mm -hmm. that time, um, but that was where it was and, and where I was at that moment. So from there, having not done that, um, that degree, not completed that degree, um, I sort of looked around and thought, well, what's next? Um, I knew I wanted to try my hand more and more at leadership opportunities. And in the Halton Board of Education at that time, and I believe it's still true, there were no heads of music. There okay. were heads of the arts. The, and arts included family studies and it included visual arts and all these things which are really wonderful things but i was i was driven to this idea that i wanted to be a head of music so a job opened up at upper canada college and i applied for it and um, because i'd been off for the year before i do remember this moment it was hilarious when i came in for my second interview um i had to change clothes in my car in the parking lot of Upper Canada College because <laughs> I was I was building swimming pools at that point um, to make it to keep rent and money going. So I had concrete all over me. And when I left, I realized that I had a, I had a streak of concrete down my forehead that that I, I looked in the rearview mirror and went, oh my goodness, after the after the interview. And I can't imagine <laughs> what they were thinking when I was in there doing this interview. But um, but it was it was it was a, a really terrific place for me to be. Um, mm. I found a, a lot of inspiration from the colleagues there. The students, you know, you, you think about a school like Upper Canada College, which is 
obviously very, very privileged. The students were paying at that time, if they were boarders, you know, $25,000 a year to be in the place. So what I found was it wasn't so much that there were wealthy uh, and empowered um, kids who, who didn't deserve uh, the privileges that they got. What I found was, yes, they, they were empowered and all those kinds of things, but the level of, of writing, the level of thinking, the, the creativity of these students just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Um, by the second year I was there, I met this young saxophone player named Wallace Halliday. <laughs> Yes. And, and if you know where Wallace is now, he is tearing up the world, running the new music ensemble and teaching saxophone at University of Toronto. And he always had this incredible intellect going on with this creative streak that was, mm-hmm. was just amazing. And, and there were several uh, students like that in, within the program. So we had the ability to play repertoire at a very, very high level. And um, we had a lot of fun. We went yeah. to... Hong Kong, um, twice, Japan, mainland China, um, a number of, of regional trips. Um, the year that I was off doing my master's degree, my colleague and friend, uh, Tony Gomes, took them to perform at the List Academy in Budapest. Like, wow. They just, we, we had these opportunities that, that were absolutely extraordinary. And mm. I found that the administration were supportive and that we, we were able to do things that, that you just wouldn't normally be able to do. We right. had um, a suite of teachers coming in to teach private lessons during the school day. So there, were, there was, an, and I believe that program is still in place. So there, there was just a, an elevated um, amount of activity musically taking place within the school. I was lucky again to be yeah. there. And, and was it during this time that you founded the uh, Toronto Wind Orchestra? Yes. Um, oh, you weren't busy enough. You just no, it wasn't busy things. enough. I, I actually <laughs> was still principal trumpet of the Mississauga Symphony. And by this time, it was a principal paid position. And mm-hmm. I was driving from, you know, Toronto to rehearse in, in, in Mississauga and then getting back just in time uh, to start the next day. It's still this same crazy day and night mm-hmm. schedule, it felt like. But one thing was feeding the other in, in a big way. Um, so some of the people from Mississauga Symphony became teachers within the, the Upper Canada College uh, studio system. The, um, the composers that I was meeting at that time, we, we just, I, there was a mingling of, of the worlds that I was working in and it was working well for everybody to say the least. Um, but at the same time, the, the Toronto Wind Orchestra came about because of the Calgary Wind Orchestra, which I encountered okay. when I was a student when I went to um, the, when I was a student and went to the, uh, the wind conducting symposium at the University of Calgary, which was led by um, Dr. Glenn Price. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at the models that he had operating and I, and I thought, well, why don't we have that in Toronto? We should have um, a place in Toronto for the best of the, the teachers and the, the, the freelancers floating around in different places to come together to play really great wind music. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how, basically how it started. So again, one of the first concerts that we did, we, we pulled in players from all kinds of communities, just simply the best players we could, we could muster. And we put together this concert and it was really well received. Great. 
so yeah, that was that was the start of that in the same time. Yeah, because I I know whenever I first heard them, it was my um, I think my first time at Music Fest as a conducting fellow with you and and Jillian, but uh, when they were at uh, National Arts Center, um, right? And and Tony Gomes, who you've already mentioned, was conducting, um, right. and it. And it's, it was just, uh, it was also something that I know right now is trying to be rebirthed in a way. And whenever I was in Toronto, I had a smaller version of, of it. Um, but would you mind talking about maybe some of the, some of the big highlights of, of Toronto uh, Wind Orchestra? I know there's a, a CD that you were kind of in the, before you uh, had left, were in the planning stages of. And... Right. We'd been um, talking for years that we needed to record the group. Um, I've been bringing, I had this... You know, I, I, I know, Dylan, this is no shock to you. I had this many step master plan <laughs> yeah. that I was going to use to, to take over the world, Pinky or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I wasn't thinking about taking over the world, but I wanted to grow the thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I had ideas about how to do that. So along the way, some of the ideas were to try to, to be asking the highest pool of freelancers that we possibly could ask to come in and play. This meant eventually money. So Mm -hmm. we were trying to figure out how to behave in the same way as maybe the, um, the, the, one of the best professional bands in Canada is the Hannaford street silver band. And they're, they were the model for me. They, they have freelance musicians and members of various excellent professional orchestras Mm -hmm. in the group. Everybody gets together for the love of playing, but they also get together because there's a, there's a reasonable um, venue to perform in. There's full houses. There's tons of accolades. There's new music being written. You know, they've commissioned well over 70 different brand new compositions. They're the stars of the, of the, of the band world in, in Canada in terms of commissioning new music. And I wanted us to have a wind version Woodman brass percussion version of the Hannaford Street Silver Band. Mm. And to varying degrees, it was successful, but I needed a board and I didn't know how to form one. I tried a couple of times and it, it, it's something that I, I want to do again <laughs> mm-hmm. now, but, uh, because I think I finally know how to do it, but I just, I, I didn't know how to do that. And, um, and basically it was costing me out of pocket money to run the ensemble. Right. And that worked well for a long while. I, I didn't mind the, the spending because it was like paying for professional development. Yeah. But, um, but there's a moment in time, you know, when, when, when that had to change. And it, it was really for me when I, so, so let's, let's put this all in perspective. I was teaching at Upper Canada College. I, I left Mississauga Symphony when I went to do my master's degree I followed the the conducting summer conducting program with a master's degree, studying with Glenn Price at the University of Calgary, and um, and then I invested all of my energies when I came back and during the time I was away in keeping the Toronto Wind Orchestra idea alive. Mm-hmm. I went off after a year getting back. I, I took off to Boston to um, to study with Frank Battisti at the New England Conservatory to get a, do- a doctorate, a DMA. And I was still coming back weekends and performing with the Toronto Wind Orchestra. So some of the performances included playing in the Glenn Gould Studio with uh, Jamie Parker performing the Stravinsky Concerto for Piano and Winds. That was a huge amount of fun. It wasn't fiscally responsible (laughs) for me, but it was um, incredibly important. 
And as it turns out, a couple of those performances were used by the New England Conservatory as my recitals. Okay. Recording came back and that was, that was used as a recital and the performances were of a caliber that, that everybody was pleased with what took place. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how to explain it. I never quite launched it the way I wanted to launch it. Mm-hmm. And when I finally actually left, um, Tony went off and did a master's at University of Calgary, Tony Gomes, after yeah. I did. And, um, and so I handed the reins of the organization over to him. And we had been in talks with, with various people about creating a, a recording. Uh, Ray Bisha, um, who's with Naxos, um, was, was part of that discussion and had actually played in the group at one point or another. So, um, and, and, uh, and we just had many, many connections, interconnections. So that project went forward and I was, you know, th- this is another story of my life thing. I, I, I seem to get these things rolling and then I, I, <laughs> I seem to exit the stage and go somewhere else and the, the success follows thereafter. And there has been some success and I do know that it has, has waned a bit, but I know, as you say, mm-hmm. that there are all these aims to, to bring it back to life. And I still think it's an important idea mm-hmm. to have that kind yeah. of group. Yeah, because when I, when I was living in Toronto, it was, it was still operating, but they were doing kind of a recording session a year uh, for kind of, I think, publishing, some kind of publishing kind of thing. I think you're uh, right. Yeah, and then I was doing like a chamber version of it, basically. And you've, you've spoken about um, kind of where you went after, after Toronto, uh, but maybe um, as we get into that, how did you, how did you know that, you, or how and when did you know that you wanted to go further within your conducting studies? Um, I spent about a decade looking at the podium and thinking, when, when I was in Mississauga Symphony, John Barnum was very kind to me and he gave me side projects to run rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And there was a brass ensemble formed out of members of the Mississauga Symphony. John Barnum was the director of the Mississauga Symphony at that time. And um, I got to do some conducting and it was really fun. Uh, conducting, not just school conducting, but, but right. with really good musicians. And um, it's kind of, I, I kind of remember a moment when, when I was seeking a way to, to move forward with this, that there was just sort of a click when I was at, at the uh, summer conducting workshop where I thought, you know, somebody has to be teaching at the university level and the university level, what I love about it is you've got people who are paying, uh, you know, huge amounts of money to be in a room to become better at their instruments. So there's a level of commitment that, that goes beyond what you even get at, at the best high school programs. Mm-hmm. And it also blends um, the performance and education worlds. That is my research um, when I'm researching quite often is performance. It's not just writing, but it is this musical performance thing. And I really love that blend of activities. Mm-hmm. So um, there was just sort of a moment or two where I thought maybe this would be fun. So here's one. Um, <laughs> I, I really didn't know what was possible or what, what limits I should have. So I just kept trying things. Mm-hmm. So I invited Steve Chenette to bring the wind ensemble from the, univer- the, the wind symphony from the University of Toronto and Wayne Jeffrey to bring the, um, the, un- the wind ensemble from the University of Western Ontario um, to perform at Upper Canada College because Glenn Price was on tour with the University of Calgary Wind Ensemble oh, wow. and they were going to do a performance. 
So I drew all these forces together and I opened the show with my own um, Upper Canada College wind ensemble playing Solitary Dancer by Warren Benson, you know, which isn't super hard, but it was, it's high level high school rep. It was something I really was proud of and they did a pretty good job. And, and then Toronto played and my students and I joined in on a Felix Einzug Strauss fanfare <laughs> that Steve loved to do and it was yeah. great. And then Western played and it was great. And then Glenn came out and did pictures at an exhibition from memory. Okay. And I just kind of, my jaw was on the floor. Right after that was when I went to the Summer Institute at University of Calgary. And that's where the epiphany sort of happened. That maybe if I worked really hard, I could find my way into this career. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it didn't start out being a plan until it kind of presented itself. I just... Right want to be around the performance of music and be around people who want to learn more about it, about that. And, and mm-hmm. that's been kind of the way that I found my way into this moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you were, <laughs> you, yeah, well, it's, it's definitely a, a discussion that I've had with you and with, with Jillian quite a bit, but this whole idea of like, I want to conduct, I want to conduct, I really want to conduct. Hey, and then often being reminded, no, you, you gotta be the best musician you can be before, you know, you try to tell other people how to be, um, because that's really our job, right? Is inspiring that and trying to bring out the best musician in, in our players. It really is. And when, uh, when I was at University of Calgary doing the masters, I studied with Glenn for the fall and we did double lessons through the fall, as I recall, because he was on sabbatical during the winter term. So oh, I took okay. over the wind ensemble at the University of Calgary for a term. Oh, and lucky. very quickly I realized that I, I can't be a teacher for those players. Mm-hmm. I can't explain music that way. I had to figure out how to lead mm-hmm. that and, and to be the musician I needed to be. And sorry. And it just, it became, it, it took me a while to, to figure out how to turn that on and off. But right. it, that's a skill that, that I know you're, you're acquiring because adjudicating, yeah. we have to be the artist musician and the teacher at the same time. And, and I think a lot of our university life as musicians have spent um, oscillating between those modes and, and then at other times being the artist coach and be, then being the ensemble coach and then coming back and explaining things and then going in to be the artist leader. And I've actually tried to figure out in, in my technique as a musician, how, like subtle cues as to when I'm teaching and when I'm art, when I'm musicking, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make that, that very clearly different for the students that I work with. You were at the University of Calgary at a very fruitful time because I've I've just met so many. Well, like some of the guests even on the podcast this on this season have been uh, partook in that summer workshop. Jason Castler um, mm-hmm. and and so on. So, would you mind just talking about kind of that? It's just a very special thing, and I really wish it was still around. Um, oh, I do too. Yeah. Um, it was it was actually the brainchild of a guy named Vondas Miller, the late Vondas Miller, and. Um, Vondas was had basically Glenn Price's job at University of Calgary before Glenn started this this workshop and it was really the first of its kind in North America so we were drawing people from around the world literally people from Germany Martin Segelka who has been working in the United States and I believe is now back in Europe um, fantastic musician was in the program all these these folks and we were drawing people from around the world as well Felix Hosworth um, just uh, some amazing musicians. I got to meet Don Hunsberger there. 
I met Frank Battisti there, um, Eugene Milagro Corporon, uh, Craig Kirchhoff, everybody who, um, who you can imagine. And at the same time, you know, I got to, to play in the wind ensemble for um, and conduct for David Meslanka because they brought a composer too each right. summer. And the, the incredible level of work that went on in that, in that program, the intensity of it was shocking. You know, we'd go day and night, like just wind music for three weeks straight. It was, right. it was an incredible program. And it was a, a, a real signpost, I think, of the time that, because it became the model that was copied by, by all sorts of other places everywhere. And I think now the, the market is very saturated with those kinds of experiences. But um, if you look at the people who are leading wind ensembles who are Canadians, when you think about the, uh, the, the university wind co college wind conductors meeting we had last week, mm -hmm. you could see eight or nine people out of the 30 or so that were there who maybe more and even who had a, a, a clear association with that program. Yeah. Really yeah. like Jillian, Colleen, there's like, there's so many, the, so many the list, Dave Lum, like I know. Dave Lum. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Jason Kastler, uh, when, when I eventually doubled back and, and went to university of Calgary, Jay, I had to, I actually had to lead the, the wind conducting program, um, when when Glenn Price left the University of Calgary, and uh, Jason was was one of the students in the program <laughs> when I was finishing it, which is just so strange because yeah. he was so great right from the get go. It, yeah. it felt like you know big shoes to fill that I I wasn't. It, it's like a lot of things I wasn't necessarily ready, but I but I wanted to learn how to do it. So mm -hmm. I just pushed myself into the place and figured it out. Yeah, wonderful. And you you've mentioned this person's name, but uh, Frank Battisti. I was wondering if you would mind talking about your time at the New England Conservatory and just studying with the legend that is Frank L. Battisti. So um, one of the reasons uh, that the University of Calgary course was so valuable, the summer course, was that you got to meet the people who were the, the teachers at the various universities around the world and especially around North America. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to go and study somewhere in the United States because the DMA programs were, were less developed. That's all I'll say about that at the time in, in, in various universities in Canada. I knew I wanted to get a degree with one of the, the people who was teaching at one of the schools I admired. And I was certain in my bones that I was going to go to um, the Eastman School of Music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'd been down because Wayne Jeffrey was down there doing his doctoral studies. I'd been down and seen and heard performances of the group. Um, I'd met Mr. Hunsberger. I'd met his, his graduate students um, who were friends of Wayne's and I just kind of got to know them, including Mark Davis Scatterday, the current conductor of the Eastman Wind Ensemble. Um, we just became friends. It was, it was very natural and very nice. And when I went to do my audition at, um, at Eastman, I, I, I did the audition and um, I had been in Japan the day before with my students on tour yep. and I'd been on a plane all day, all day Friday and I had to get up at five or six in the morning, but I didn't really sleep on Saturday morning to go to Eastman 
to, to do my audition with the Stravinsky octet and to do all the tests and everything that was going on there. And I didn't have a good day. Mm-hmm. So imagine my shock. Again, this is really instructive for me. Imagine my shock when I, when I was not successful on my first try at that place. I was, um, I was crushed. Mm-hmm. And of course, there were all kinds of reasons, but I didn't want to hear that. I just wanted to, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And um, in the process of preparing for that audition, I had done some audition video materials and sent the paper um, on the Stravinsky Symphonies of Wind Instruments, of all things, to Frank Battisti. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks later, I got it back and it was just covered in red ink and there were notes attached to it and all kinds of things. And it was so valuable. His insights and his generosity were just so valuable to me in the way I was thinking about that piece. I discovered it while I was in Calgary doing my master's and it, and it became a fascination for me that I didn't know more about this amazing work. And then I realized there were two versions and I, and then I, right. I, realize actually now that there are maybe seven or eight different versions of the piece. So um, it's a, it's a fascination still for me to this day. And, uh, and Frank's generosity, his knowledge of the repertoire was just shocking. Mm-hmm. Like he, he knew all the sources, he knew all the resources. Um, and he was working very, um, very much with, with some of the greatest contemporary composers, um, Warnin, uh, um, Sir Michael Tippett, uh, he, he had uh, Colgrass come in and they were really good friends and, mm-hmm. and all this kind of thing. And I just, it just lit me up thinking, well, you know, there, there's a nexus of activity taking place out there. I wonder what that would be like. And as it turns out, having my, my personal expectations for myself thwarted <laughs> was the best thing that could have happened to me. <laughs> Story of my life. Yeah. I think it's going to be one way I go whole hog into that. And then I figure out, oh, maybe this would be better. Right. And, and Frank very generously offered me a chance to come and be his assistant and, um, and study and get my degree at, at uh, New England Conservatory. So uh, my son Tristan was born in May of 1997. And in August of 1997, I moved out of the house. <laughs> and moved to a different country, which I still feel like I owe him great debts of, of (laughs) uh, love and and attention that I just, I just was not there to give. And not not Mm. only that, I have to mention right now that uh, my wife, Sally has been the rock upon which everything I've been able to do has been built. Mm. Um, And I just feel very fortunate that I've, I've been in that situation where I've been able to have, somewhat of a, a quote-unquote normal family life, whatever that is, <laughs> at the same time as being allowed to pursue the, the art that I really was just, I, it's, I'm driven to pursue still mm-hmm. to this day. That's lucky. It, yeah. Most people don't get that. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, I went off to New England Conservatory and it was um, amazing. The, I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I use that word a lot, but the array of doors and windows that were opened through that experience and through the people I got to work with, among them Frank, obviously, but just the opportunities of, of a school in the center of Boston with 1,200 plus music majors running around 
there were no classes allowed in the mornings. The mornings were devoted to rehearsals. So we would rehearse the wind ensemble Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 9 a.m. to noon. And then classes would begin. What a dream. It was the most amazing thing. (laughs) It was just a decision they made because they're new in the conservatory. They're, they're, they're not, they, they offer university degrees, but they are a conservatory. Mm. And therefore that is their focus. And again, I didn't learn all of this until I didn't realize how extraordinary all of this was until I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on, a, on any given day, if you walk through the building, you will hear music going on that you cannot imagine from the improvised music courses and, and performers to the jazz division, to the gamelan down the hall, to the multiple orchestras in various rooms. And, and it, it basically was that orchestras, full orchestra rehearsed Tuesday, Thursday, but Monday, Wednesday, Friday was string orchestra and wind ensemble going on at the same time, various parts of the building. Jeez. And players were shared amongst the pools and, and rotated in and out of ensembles. And it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Nothing short of fantastic. Wonderful. And are there any, uh, any favorite um, Batiste-isms that you could share with us? <laughs> well, I used to meet Frank at 6.30 in the morning and um, he would hand me my list and it usually had anywhere from eight to 17 different tasks that I had to check and recheck and double check and confirm were in place for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would cop- do the copies and make sure music was ready for the wind ensemble. And um, if he was out of town doing anything, I would be allowed to rehearse the ensemble at those points in time. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was just the Frank's humanity and his work ethic were inspirational. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I worked hard. I had never seen anyone with the, the drive and the passion for this business like Frank has to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, his knowledge, the, the courses, the Winlick courses were absolutely amazing. And I have modeled much of my teaching on his structured approach to understanding score study. And I think the the biggest highlight for me from from that moment is that um, many, it doesn't matter how you get to a certain point when you're ready to be a conductor, leader, teacher in front of a group of musicians. It doesn't matter if you walk up to a score and you open it up and you can hear everything right off the bat as soon as you open it. What matters is you need to be able to do these certain things with the score and whatever it is you need to do at that moment to get to that stage, go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like you have to answer to anybody else. Early on in my studies as a conductor, it was um, assumed that if you had to mark a score in any significant way to understand what was going on in it, that maybe you just weren't a good enough musician to approach that score. And that's fine. I, I understood that and I tried to be the best musician I could as a result. But what Frank showed me was that if you had deficits, then you should work at the deficits to try and, and bring those up to par. And that there were, there were many ways to get to where you wanted to be as the artist musician you were going to be. So that was inspirational because it kind of gave me license to, to aim high and, and work hard to meet that expectation. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really met anyone like him before. Um, I, I take that back. Don Coakley and, 
and Larry Weeks and Steve Chenette at U of T was incredibly helpful and important to me and Glenn Price and all of these other people. But what I loved about Frank was he was dedicated to the highest level of music and music making and mm-hmm. a story. Anything less than that wasn't an interest to him. And that passion, that passion for excellence speaks to me to this day. Mm-hmm. Every time I talk to him, I come away thinking I really need to work harder and do more. He's <laughs> <laughs> just that guy. Yeah, wonderful. And, and then after your time at, at NEC, uh, you were off to, is it Indiana? Indiana. Indiana. I was hunting for jobs. And yeah. uh, um, I didn't know what was going to be next, but I, I had a, I'd been using a student visa and I knew that I could achieve a trade NAFTA visa at that time to stay if I could find work. There's a two-year trade NAFTA agreement that at that time, I don't even know if it's still like that, but I could stay in the country to do practical work related to my degree if I could win a job. In order to win a job, I had to prove that I was better than any Americans in the region (laughs) that would be applying for that position. Right. So I applied for a position in a small, small liberal arts school in Indiana um, called uh, Hanover College. It's on the banks of the Ohio River. And it's basically an intersection between just south of an intersection of Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. And it was just just north of, of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So um, it, was a, it was a small school. There were maybe 40 or 50 music majors. Um, I had to teach clarinet and violin and oh, all of geez. these things. And, and the music educator in me, in me felt pretty comfortable doing that. The true artistic pedagogue in me shudders to this day thinking <laughs> of what, what, I, what I might have said or done. What I found was it was really helpful teaching those private students um, to be able to talk about music writ large. You know, how are we going to shape this phrase? What's the purpose of the, what is the structure of the music and what are we trying to get out of it? And, um, and that, that was really great. I remember calling my first uh, meeting of the band at mm-hmm. Hanover College and about 16 people wandered in from various parts of the stage sometime after the downbeat of the, of the, um, of the ensemble when it was supposed to start and thinking, okay, here we go and started building and building and building and building and building. So it was, uh, it was, it was very familiar in a way, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I like fixing things. It's one of the things <laughs> I've, I've learned. I like finding something that has potential un, under t- untapped potential and then seeing how far we can make that go. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of years being there, it was, it was a great place to be. I was a tenure track assistant professor of music. But I'd, um, I'd hit a couple of glass ceilings. That is, mm-hmm. the music department was a department and I think forever was it going to stay. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any music education taught there. Um, it was basically to give people who had a love and passion for music a chance to get a Bachelor of Arts in music. And there were a few BMUS students, but really its bread and butter was that, that secondary major kind of thing. So when I realized I had a glass ceiling, um, well, something had to change. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. It's, I was smiling the whole time you were I know. telling me just because of how familiar it is to my current position in Sudbury. And, uh, and like, just like you said, you know, you, you go into private lessons with a, a clarinet or a flute and, and especially at the beginning, so, so freaked out about 
saying the right thing, but then just once again, full circle, going back to your, your musicianship that you've always, uh, you know, put time into and trusted seems to be what benefits students the most. So it's, it's a very cool thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And then and the, 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 oh, oh, sorry. Did you have something else to say about that? Well, I was just going to mention that it was, it was a great place to be. Um, I got to conduct the Messiah a few times and, and some, some big works with a town and gown orchestra members from Louisville orchestra coming up and, and doing their thing. I got to adjudicate all States, which was a trippy thing in and of itself <laughs> that I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Indiana and in Kentucky. And, um, it, it was really exciting while I was there. Um, in fact, on the, on the evening that I submitted the first draft of my dissertation, um, my daughter Margaret was, was born. And then in short order, um, 911 took place. And okay. living in America at the time that 9-11 happened was a, uh, it was a real experience for a, a good liberal-minded Canadian living in the north of the south, which is what Indi- the southern Indiana is called the north of the south. And there were our very deep divisions built up over a century or two in the, in the community that um, mostly we, we, we avoided when we were living on campus as, you know, as Sally and I as young, or she was a young parent, as parents with, with young kids is what I mean. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, there was this moment when 9-11 happened and they were going to head off to school. They were getting ready to go to school. And in a small town where we were, there, there just didn't seem to be adequate options. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Glenn Price was in the midst of, of making a move from the University of Calgary to go elsewhere. And basically, he kind of orchestrated the idea that maybe if I really wanted to, I could get a full-time contract, not tenure track, but a full-time contract, um, replacing a lot of the, him for a lot of the courses, he, a few of the courses he was teaching and a, and a few others, though, um, at University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. And uh, take over the summer conducting program, which was really in the process of winding down at that point, okay. unfortunately, and um, for a variety of reasons, mostly budgetary and otherwise, that that the university was going through its own analysis mm-hmm. and change period. So I took him up on it. We loaded everything we owned, sold anything we didn't need, and 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 packed up cars and drove with, with one Volvo being towed behind <laughs> on a trailer, drove across and up and into Calgary. And it was, there was a moment, and this happened every time when we were living in the States, when you cross the border from the United States into Canada, where this thing that you've been carrying like this kind of relaxed. You can't see me. I'm clenching my fists <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Because you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're in a, you're in a different country with different values than, than some of the ones you hold. But, but I, I loved my time in America. We spent mm-hmm. overall f- four or five years there between my doctoral studies and, and the time we were in, um, in Hanover. But there was this moment driving over the border, coming back to Canada where it just, there was an ease. I felt like I was breathing better, breathing differently. I was going to something mm-hmm. where I felt like I, I had, some things to offer at University of Calgary. So um, University of Calgary was extremely important to me because it's where I feel like I figured out how to be a really, um, a a better teacher, musician to university age students. Mm -hmm. And I had so many 
helpful people. Besides Glenn Price, I have to mention the amazing Dr. Jeremy Brown, who generously made room for me to, to work at the University of, of Calgary. And one point he actually left conducting the symphonic band and, and took other roles within the university to make sure there was a, a place and a way for me to continue working with a band while I was, was teaching there. Great. And it was a few years, but it was a very important few years. Mm-hmm. I had some amazing students there, um, yeah. people like Eric Lung, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, came. You, you have people like him who yeah. are just so eager and so hungry. They, they lift the, the, the temperature and, and, and the level of teaching that takes place in any room they're in. Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. I, yet, I've just jumped into the next question. Sorry, well, no, go for no, it. No, that's fine. And yesterday, Eric just agreed to be a guest on next season. So that's very, <laughs> very exciting. He is a remarkable person yeah. in every every respect. You're going to just be fascinated by yeah. by who he is and how he came to be where he is. It's, yeah, him and will you? So that'll be that'll be great. That's right. And um, so yeah, and and also while you were in Calgary, as you were in Toronto, you founded another professional <laughs> wind ensemble. Yeah, I don't know what. The, well, you see, what happened was Glenn had one going, okay. and it sort of you know like anything, there's a, there's a moment of of great flurry of activity <coughs> with these things, but maintaining them takes infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, and and so Glenn had a a group going, the Calgary Wind Orchestra that I based the Toronto Wind Orchestra on. Right. And then he, um, it, it, for a variety of reasons, that group just dissipated. So we started a group um, w- with some players from that ensemble, some university students, some teachers, and members of the Calgary Philharmonic who were really excited to do this, like Mikey Stepp played all the concerts, tuba player at that time with the Calgary Phil, and and supported it and 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 got others in the Calgary Philharmonic to play with the group as well. And the group was called the Alberta Winds. Mm-hmm. And it again was one of those those projects that was just so passionate. We had great guest performers. We performed um, the very best wind music that we could lay our hands on, and they performed it very very well. So um, there's there was the all these different levels of activity on campus, off campus. Um, taking place at any given moment for me when I was at, at University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. But again, for me, the, the, the biggest thing was that people were so generous and so kind. I recently went back and, and conducted the Alberta Wind Symphony, which is the, um, the honor band, the provincial honor band, high school right. honor band there. And um, I got to see Malcolm Edwards, who was the director of the, the Department of Music when I was, when I was there. Okay. And it was just such a delight because these folks supported me and helped me so much along the way. Um, a big, for instance, um, some of you may know I had a health crisis uh, a number of years back, and um, I am at. I'm still at this moment where I, I need to have a drug plan in order mm. to survive because the cost of the medications that I take to keep going. I'm, I'm very fortunate; everything is fine, and. There were little moments along the way that were difficult, but I, I absolutely had to have a drug plan or I couldn't come to take the job at University of Calgary. Right. And Malcolm managed to create the kind of contract that just got me in the door to have a drug plan in the contract so I could be there. And just 
little big things like that, people have been very, very kind. And Calgary is still one of my favorite places. I was really excited that Music Fest and the Dennis Wick Canadian Wind Orchestra were going to be in Calgary this year. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that is not to be. Um, And that's, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But but it's just a very, very important part of my life and my, my, my teaching. Yeah, no, I was really looking forward to it. To, to seeing it with you because I've never actually been to Calgary, so it was going to be. Oh, we would have had some fun. <laughs> next, oh, next year's Niagara, but anyway, um, we'll have fun there too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then, after Calgary, the, well, so far you're you're uh, you're kind of settled now, uh, yeah. and that was at, in Nova Scotia at Acadia University, and this is really where uh, I. I think I've told you this before, but the first time I ever saw you, I was a little grade 10 student <laughs> at the uh, Atlantic uh, Band Festival. And I That's remember you coming in and being very <laughs> intimidated. Um, and uh, and that was my kind of first experience. And since I, I went to Acadia Band Camp and, and saw you there as well. But it's a, it's a real, it was, that school for me is, has been, a, although I didn't go there, has been a very important uh, place for me in, in my development as a musician and kind of realizing what I want to do. Um, so I was wondering if, if you could kind of just talk to us a bit about your position there and how it's really developed quite a bit since you uh, first got there. Yes, I've been, um, it's a small school too. There are, you know, 4,000, 5,000 students at any given moment on campus total. Mm-hmm. But it has, a, unlike the, the position I had at, at Hanover College, which had 40 or 50 music majors, this uh, school has maybe 120 to 150 music majors, depending on a variety of factors. And um, it has been a wonderful place to be. Um, I took the job. Um, is it, it, uh, it was a tenure track position. And I realized um, that at University of Calgary, a tenure track position was not going to follow. Mm-hmm. And for me, the important part about the tenure track idea was um, that there's an expectation of research to take place as well as performance and, and service as, as an instructor. That, that research component is big in my mind and um, they've allowed me to do just about anything I've wanted since I got here. Mm-hmm. So we moved to, from Calgary, um, bustling city of Calgary to the town of 3000, Wolfville, Nova Scotia in 2005. And in 2006, uh, then director John Hansen allowed me to start a, a wind ensemble separate from the symphonic band. And we have had that system in place now for all that time, mm-hmm. uh, however long that is, 14 years or so. And it's allowed me to really focus hard on the repertoire we wanted, I wanted to study and perform. And it has also meant that for all of our student, students on campus, there's a place for them no matter what level of musician they are at any given moment. We have room for someone who's a decent high school player who just wants to play for the love of it in our Tuesday night uh, symphonic band. But there's also this, this high octane machine that is the wind ensemble that, that allows us to explore the, the, the very similar rep than you would find it, that you would find at any of the, the, the best universities in Canada. And that was my goal. And in order to do that, we, we rehearse a little more than some of the other ensembles per week. We have four hours of rehearsal a week. 
And um, we also have a regular system of, of sectionals um, outside of that timetable. And we have assigned tasks for players within the group to make that go. But that has been my passion project since I got here. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really excited that the, we were the first group um, east of Montreal in 2010 to go and perform at the uh, the CBDNA conference in yeah. uh, uh, one of the the northeastern regional CBDNA conference in Pennsylvania, and that was a big moment for the for the program. It was sort of a moment of arrival for right. the program. Yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, it's been yeah. fun. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's there's just so much to talk about even within in here. Um, but one thing, and I, I didn't I didn't give you this question, but was uh, your creative partnership with with Derek Shark? And I was I was wondering if, if you might talk about a little bit about about that and uh, and how that came to be and and how it works. Well, it was um, it was one of those things where Derek came from from SUNY Buffalo with his doctorate, but he had also done graduate studies in in London at the Royal College. He'd studied with um, uh, in Rotterdam with with um, Louis Andreessen. Like he's got an incredible pedigree as a composer. When he came to us, he was writing music um, for uh, the Chrono String Quartet and was flying to Berlin for world premieres and crazy things like that. And we both arrived at the same time. We both didn't know a soul. We had no idea how we got these jobs. Um, We found out (laughs) later it was on merit, but at the time it just felt like, like everybody in the, in the program seemed to know each other, have a connection to Acadia. We had no idea what Acadia was or what it could be. So it was, it was one of those moments where, where not knowing was probably really helpful. (laughs) So there was no new music festival. And we said, there should be a new music festival. And within a couple of years, we had Shattering the Silence going and we were bringing guests from all over North America and um, composers and performers. Some just amazing folks came through the, the, the festival as it was running. And we then looked around and said, you know, there's a really great improvised music thing taking place in Nova Scotia through Upstream and some of those, those really great uh, collectives of people who were doing live improvised musics and, and not not strictly jazz formations, but but classical, quote unquote, mm-hmm. classical, improvised music, and uh, but there wasn't really a signature chamber ensemble playing written down music of of certain types at a really high caliber. So we formed um, our uh, our ensemble at that particular time, and uh, we performed and and. In the region, we we moved around a little bit and did guest conference, or sorry, guest concerts, and uh, recorded a few CDs and got some nominations for ECMAs and things like that, and that was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I forgot to mention about Calgary that was really important was I became the artistic director of the Lands End Chamber Ensemble right. at that time while I was there, as well as doing the the Alberta Winds and. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mention the Calgary Stetson show band either. I I had an affiliation. I was leading them for a while too. I I was just running like a mad thing all over Mm -hmm. the place doing these things. But the, the Lands End Chamber Ensemble gave me a taste for um, the high energy chamber music um, outlet as a, as a creative outlet, as a performing outlet. And it was really fun to curate concerts for them. And so when we, when Derek and I, um, started working together here at Acadia University. It was the same kind of thing, finding ways to bring music to audiences who had never heard this kind of music before 
and uh, and doing it to a really high level. And we work with members of Symphony Nova Scotia and and principal applied instructors at Acadia to 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 form this chamber ensemble that that was for a very long time a really big important part of my life. Well, one thing I I do want to talk about before we um, come off of Acadia is talk about the the Master's Ed program because right. I think it's really special, especially in the Maritimes. And it is. It is. Um, so one of the things that, um, that I didn't have to cope with when I was teaching, but, uh, but a lot of teachers, especially here in, in, um, in Nova Scotia, have to cope with is that if they want to reach the top salary grid in Nova Scotia, they have to have two master's degrees in order to reach the very top salary grid. So there's an incentive for those worker bees who really want to get that upper level. They don't need to do it necessarily. You know, in Massachusetts, um, you had a decade from the time at the start of your contract as a high school teacher to earn a master's degree or else you'd be let go. Mm -hmm. Like it was a mandatory thing. So programs flourished, but not everybody was as committed to doing it for the right reasons. But anyway, so um, I really have to credit Ardeth Haley with the, uh, the creation of the master's program here. Ardith was teaching within the School of Music on and off while teaching high school at that time and um, when I first arrived. And uh, she moved into a, a, a teaching role in terms of supervising uh, music education students in the School of Education here at Acadia University. And that has evolved over time to her taking a leadership role in creating this map online master's degree course here at, at Acadia. And I say online because the curriculum studies courses are delivered through an online model. Mm-hmm. But um, there's live, most summers, except for this summer, there's live pupil contact with, with um, practical courses um, on site at Acadia University in, in July. And um, so she... And, and in partnership with Dale Lottis have brought some amazing, amazing music educators um, from all over the country and into the States. And, and we had a, a guy from Egypt last year, um, <laughs> people coming to this program and, and getting a really great, great um, uh, experience through it. And my role in there has been to develop a course because they, they come to this program and some of them are elementary school teachers Right. Some of them have found their way into teaching um, with musical backgrounds that are very diverse. Leave it at that. There's, there's um, people who, uh, they're not all band teachers, they're not all choral teachers, they're not all conductors. Um, there's everything. In, in, a, in my class this summer, there will be 14 people, which include a, an elementary string, strings person, a number of elementary classroom music people with that kind of activity in their lives, a couple of choral directors at the high school level, and a number of people in junior high and high school level who teach everything like I did with band, choir, jazz band, and the whole thing. And so if you're going to talk to all of those people, you, I had to find a thread, a way to do this. Um, and for me, it has been um, largely working with this concept um, known as ensembleship. This is a coin termed um, originally, to my knowledge, by Carolyn Barber. Okay. And um, she's at University of Nebraska, and she is a powerhouse. I heard her give a presentation, and I have followed her work since. And I've developed this course called Ensembleship to work with people on, on how they can be better teacher leaders of groups of people um, 
within whatever classroom setting they're in. So there is conducting, but a lot of it is about score study and linking your score study to your classroom teaching. Mm -hmm. So that's the part of the program that I get to work with. And I really valued that experience. It's broadened me um, and it keeps me in touch with what's going on in, in schools across the country. And I think mm -hmm. it keeps my, my teaching at Acadia fresh right. in a big way. Wonderful. And, uh, and now we'll, uh, we'll move on. I remember uh, last, last month we interviewed Jonathan Desjene, who's who is a, a professional who wears many hats, as I told him. So many that it, it, it's, it's hard to Impossible come up with. to follow. I know, yeah. he's doing so many things, that guy. Yeah, and then, and then you're, you know, you're not so different yourself. So even with, with your story and your path, uh, we come back to Stravinsky. And, and I was wondering if, yeah. if you could talk about, <laughs> I mean, you did do your dissertation on it, but. Uh, uh, no, I didn't. You didn't? Oh. Here we are again. Oh, there's another story there. Are you uh, ready? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> so when I went to, because uh, I'd, I'd given Frank originally this essay that I'd written while I was at, at University of Calgary on Stravinsky's Symphonies of Wind Instruments. And I thought it was a pretty good piece of work. And Frank sent it back to me all marked up beyond all belief. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to New England Conservatory, um, Frank... Uh, said, so you've got an idea of what you want to do for a dissertation somewhere in my first year. And um, I said, well, I definitely want to do uh, a recital that includes the music of Stravinsky, hence the uh, Stravinsky Piano Concerto and for Piano and Winds with, with Jamie Parker at Glenn Gould. Mm -hmm. But I also said, I'm fascinated with the symphonies of wind instruments and I want to know more about it and, and, and do some research based on this work. He said, well, there's no point in doing that. It's all been done. And I was crushed. Once again, I went in knowing what I wanted to do. And lo and behold, it wasn't the right thing. As it turns out, my dissertation um, is based upon a really wonderful underperformed work called An American Song by the uh, American composer, Alan Fletcher. Oh. And um, What's beautiful about it is it takes a kind of an Ivesian approach. He accesses um, folk songs from all over America to create a narrative. And it's all built around the bed of the America, the beautiful. And it's not, um, it's, it's a, a philosophical um, statement, if you will, about the, sta the state of America, the status of America in the world, and where it might be going and how it's, it sometimes has troubles. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it turns out <laughs> it's kind of a pressing work as well. And I really enjoyed um, studying and, and trying to understand that work. But at first I wanted to, to write about Stravinsky symphonies. And Frank said, no, there's nothing else to do there. Um, well, it turns out, in my opinion, it's not done. <laughs> right. And, um, and, I, and I'm hoping... For so many years, I thought you were studying Stravinsky. Like, I thought that was your dissertation it's, topic. It still is my thing, but it was yeah. never my dissertation topic. Huh. Luckily, that's also what got me to go to, um, to Eastman. Mm -hmm. um, I'd had Mark out to, to work with my group, Mark Scatterday, to work with my Acadia group. And um, as I said, we've been friends for a while. And he asked me if I wanted to, to go to Eastman to, to do something there. And it happened, it was the chamber winds. And I said, Stravinsky, and he said, great. Which version? 1947, great. And away we went. So wow. I got to go to Eastman 
and perform in Kilburn Hall after all, after, mm-hmm. <laughs> after not being accepted there as right. a doctoral student. So there, there was a certain circular feel to that. Right. It wasn't any like great hurrah. It was just, oh, if I keep working, mostly things will happen. If I just work hard enough, right. things usually work eventually. Okay. Yeah, that was my next question. So great. Oh, was it? The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Mark Scatterday moment? Yeah, um, the Eastman moment. And, it was um, really fun. And I guess, well, I keep saying it, but there's just so many full circle moments. And one of them, which I, I comes up in a lot of my discussions with people, is this one with Music Fest Canada. And I was wondering if you could speak about your your involvement with Music Fest Canada um, when it comes to the Dennis Wick Canadian Wind Orchestra. Sure, 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 sure. The... Um, so while I was at University of Calgary, Jeremy Brown had um, founded the National Concert Band. And this all arises out of a great rift that developed between Music Fest Canada and the National Youth Band of Canada and the Canadian Band Association. So, well, I'll, I'll give you the, the full story. Sure. When I was a kid, I met... Jim Howard twice, once when I was in grade 10 (laughs) and he was not very old himself. And uh, the um, national finals of the Canadian Stage Band Festival were held in my high school and Nimmons and Nine were there and all that stuff happened. And then later when I was at University of Toronto and playing in the University of Toronto big band with Phil Nimmons as leader, Mm -hmm. um, uh, we went and performed at the Canadian Stage Band Festival in Vancouver in the open class and uh, actually won the open class at that time, which was a really important statement, we felt, because we were the classical school. We weren't expected to sound and and be as great a band as that was, but Nimmons was inspirational. And Mm -hmm. again, that band had just some monster players in it. And um, this was long before there was a jazz band or a jazz program at University of Toronto. So, um, and I think I learned a huge amount about music in general from Phil Nimmons and interpretation from the ways that he talked about music and thought about music. Um, I should have listed him like the list of people who have been kind to me, Dylan is (laughs) astronomical. Yeah. And they, they've, They've let me be in the room and let me watch and think about what it is that they do. And they've just been very generous. So anyway, then I met Jim then when he had his first child in a stroller <laughs> in, in uh, sometime in, in the early 80s. Then I was a high school teacher and I started bringing groups to Music Fest regionals and we got an invite to go to nationals in Ottawa, which we did. And that was uh, another time that I got to meet Jim Howard and, and work with him and Music Fest. Um, and I continued to do that over my career on and off, sometimes going to nationals, often going to regionals um, and when I was teaching high school. Later, um, I got invited to adjudicate for the first time and it was the nationals of Music Fest Canada. And it was in the time when I just finished my master's degree with Glenn Price and I didn't really know what I was trying to say or do as an adjudicator. I tried to do everything. The other, it was like going to dinner for the first time when they had nine <laughs> forks to one side. You do what the person next to you does. And right. I tried to use my ears and offer the best advice I could. 
and it was a steep learning curve, but it was, mm -hmm. it was very exciting and I loved doing that. Later, after all of the circuitous journeys through the United States, I'm at University of Calgary and Jeremy Brown is running this national concert band, mm -hmm. which was a project of Music Fest Canada. And for many years, the National Youth Band of Canada and Music Fest twinned. That is, the, the National Youth Band would go and do its rehearsals um, at some university somewhere. It would then do a tour, and the tour would culminate with one or two performances on a Friday night at, um, at Music Fest Canada. At some point, Jim wanted the Music Fest Canada Nationals to take place in one city, and the National Youth Band wanted to run its program in a different place. And Jim said, fine, I'll create my own band. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of a, a very good relationship. Okay. Um, and there was much enmity for many years within that gen. I didn't know anything about this when I came on board, but there was much enmity for a while. Um, a decade at least between Music Fest and the Canadian Band Association. And really, I'm very happy to say that that has kind of gone the way of the dodo. It's no longer um, a part of the reality. In fact, we, we try to work together. We work in sympathy with, with one another because anything that makes kids and music come closer together is good. All of us mm -hmm. agree with this and we just do our things in different, slightly different ways. So while I was at University of Calgary, Jeremy asked me if I would come on and help him run the National Concert Band. And I said, yes, as long as I get to conduct something. I don't want to go and just do all the, the, um, the, the busy work, the organization of auditions and, and everything else that goes along with this if I don't get a chance to conduct. Mm -hmm. He agreed. And um, it, was, it was a really great partnership. I have had so many educations. One of the best ones was working with Jeremy Brown. <laughs> he is a rock star musician. And remember, I've been working with Frank Battisti. So I was going after every single tiny detail I could possibly get from the score and the music and, right. and prodding kids to think certain ways. And, and that's really important. It was really, it's really a great thing, but it's one style. Jeremy's style, he would let things go. He would let mistakes go until the people figured out to fix, not, not big mistakes, but he, he knew when something was an error and it was just something that would be fixed the next time around. And when he had to go in and be inspirational about how to be better, how to better embody the music that was taking place. And this was so instructional for me because Jeremy's performances are stunning. They are with, to this day with the, the, the Calgary Wind Orchestra, Calgary Wind Symphony, pardon me, that's the name of the group that he works with now. The performances are absolutely incredible. Um, and he gets there through his humanity as much as his musicianship, which is off the charts as a saxophone instructor and player. Yeah. Um, but it's just so different than, than that other teacherly way. So once again, I'm, I learned so much working with Jeremy for, I think, I think we did this together for five, six years. Okay. And um, at some point, Jeremy was taking a sabbatical and something changed and he wasn't going to be able to come back. Um, right. At that time, Dennis Wick came on as a, uh, as a sponsor and they, we needed a new name. And I don't know why I chose something with the acronym DWCWO. <laughs> um, 
it doesn't flow easily off the tongue, but it's become a brand. Yeah. And uh, Stephen Wick, who represents Dennis Wick's products around the world, um, Dennis Wick's son, Stephen Wick, um, has been a terrific partner with the organization. He um, uh, He's an inspirational uh, brass musician himself. He's a tuba player. Um, if you ever listen to the first, the soundtrack of the first Star Wars film, um, you will hear his stellar tuba playing in, in the soundtrack for that. It was recorded in London. Mm-hmm. So um, so the, the Dennis Wick group um, came into being about eight or nine years ago. And when I was seeking a colleague to work with, this is one of the things I managed to convince um, the Music Fest people about. That is, why wouldn't we have just one conductor? And what I tried to suggest to them was that it was great to represent as many communities as we could, um, both geographically and in terms of also trying to seek um, something, I won't say it was gender parity, but just making sure that we have as big a tent as we possibly could have. And the person who embodied all of those things is Jillian McKay. Now I hadn't actually met Jillian um, for many, many years, I've known, I'd known about her for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the year that I finished my, um, my master's degree, Sally and I took a big, long motorcycle ride out to uh, Newfoundland. Right. And it just happened that Dr. McKay was leading the band at the, the Newfoundland music camp. And I got to go in, I found out that she was out there and I, I talked my way in to go in and watch her rehearse, <laughs> standing at the sideline, having never met her, wearing all of my leather, holding a helmet <laughs> in my hand, watching a rehearsal take place. And I, I know that she must have thought, who is that idiot? What is he doing there? <laughs> in all that leather, it's blinking hot. What's going on? And we, we, we just met there for the first time. And later, thanks to, uh, to Leah uh, McGray, um, who was a graduate student of Jillian's. I got to come in and do the, uh, the summer conducting workshop at the University of Toronto as one of their guests. Right. And we really got to know each other at that time. This was prior to the founding of the Dennis Wick Group. And we hit it off. Um, she is uh, such an inspirational colleague and a musician and person. You know, she, um, she has a wit that is faster and sharper than anyone I've ever met practically. And at the same time, just a, a really, much like Jeremy, just a, a terrific humanity is, exudes from her. And um, people tend to go into situations with her and they learn more and they, they learn better um, because of the work that she does. So uh, I invited Jillian to join me in this project. And we have developed the Dennis Wick Canadian Wind Orchestra as a performing ensemble over the years together. And we then cultivated the, um, this idea of having a place for people who are undergraduate musicians to go and figure out what it means to be a conductor. Um, because we often have these lofty ideas of what it means to be a conductor. I didn't have anyone when I was a student to help me um, understand how to, what it, what, it mean, what it meant to be a conductor and, and what kind of work it was going to be. Um, it just, the, the opportunity didn't avail itself to me until much later. And uh, so it's been really a terrific program because it's brought some inspirational young musicians um, together to work together, both in the students, in the ensembles, but in the, the fellows themselves. We've, we've had a great time with that program. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool 
and we've talked about it before, but thanking everyone who's come through and we've kind of started to accumulate an alumni list. And, and I know like a great deal of my closest colleagues till this day are from either the fellowship or from the members of the band at the time. So it's, it's uh, one of those full circle things. Once again, it's the nice. theme of the interview. The theme of um, the interview. <laughs> yeah. And I remember one of my fondest memories was last year uh, when Scott Harrison, president of CBA, um, came, <laughs> came up to me uh, and, and asked me to be part of a, uh, a presentation to you and, and, and Dr. McKay, um, at which we were supposed to keep secret. Turns out uh, Hope Gendron, who's the other co-manager of, of Dennis Wick, knew for like months. But uh, I was let in there last minute, and um, it was during <laughs> the performance of of, uh, of the Canadian Wind Orchestra, and it was my job to wrangle both of you <laughs> onto stage, which I was like, oh, that's easy enough. Um, and so uh, once I went to go find you, you went the opposite way, and I was <laughs> chasing after you um, because it was my job to push you on stage to um, receive the National Band Award from the Canadian Band Association, um, and you just didn't believe me, and it was hilarious. <laughs> but, I actually um, didn't believe you, and I, I still don't quite believe it. Yeah. Um, that was that is a huge honor, mm-hmm. and it was really and truly so unexpected. And again, here we go with that that term full circle. But imagine that there had been this this split between the Canadian Band Association and Music Fest. And when I went to work for Music Fest, I went to work for them knowing full well that that I would be an outlier within the the family of the Canadian Band Association. At least that's what I thought, Mm -hmm. because there was such enmity between people within the two camps at that particular time. But over time, um, it hasn't affected me negatively to be working with Music Fest at all. In fact, it's Mm -hmm. been nothing but positive. And I have met some great friends and colleagues through that work. And I have managed at the same time to be actively working with with groups all across the country mm-hmm. and with festivals all across the country. And I think once again, we're back around to that, that same thing where, where the quality of work that we can do for young people is the most important thing. That is the most important thing, making great music with young people. And Music Fest believes that, the Canadian Band Association believes that. So receiving this award again was one of those striking privileges that I I didn't know would ever happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I th- the reason I bring it up is also because it's it's just such a testament to um, your partnership with Dr. McKay, and um, it's it's such a it's it's very unique, especially two trumpet playing conductors <laughs> um, being able to just compliment compliment each other so well and to so support each other, and I know. I know there's discussions I'm definitely not there for um, where, you know, you're talking about repertoire and, and debating those kind of things, but oh yeah, we don't agree on rep yeah. on a lot of things, but, <laughs> but that's beyond, okay. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's a very important relationships to have with, with people. And it's, it's been a real inspiration to me just to, to be a colleague, like to see you guys be colleagues. I, I hope someday that, that I can be that colleague to someone else as well. Um, so it's a, it's a really unique thing and, and I'm grateful and thankful for, for, for having both of you in, the, in, that, in that framework uh, with Dennis Wick. Let me finish, <laughs> let me finish with this. Um, yeah. I have always liked being in a room with people who are passionate about what they do and about the music making they're going to make. And what that means is I'm in a room full of people 
who believe what they believe with all of their heart and soul. And it, it is almost invariably going to be different than what I believe. And right. being able to live with ambiguity is a very, very important thing um, within any leadership situation. With the ambiguity of some being with people who don't agree with you, it should not make you throw your hands up in the air and run the other way or create armed camps. It should be an inspiration that either I am going to change or I'm going to change their minds. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we're both right. All of those possibilities exist. There's an amazing book called Team of Rivals. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it blew my mind. I read a lot. This is another thing Frank advocates and advocated. Um, when he left the house that, that his children grew up in, they had to leave the house and have it torn down because the house was literally structurally unsound because of the <laughs> books that were in the place. And his new house is has no basement <laughs> right. and it's on a flat pad and the books are wall to ceiling. Um, <laughs> floor to ceiling, sorry. Um, Team of Rivals talks about how Abraham Lincoln, when he became um, president of the United States, chose people from the opposing team Mm -hmm. to join him because he thought they were the best. And he thought that the debate that would happen within that framework was going to make America a better place. And I think it's safe to say that in his way, Mr. Lincoln did that. (laughs) Um, But I'm just very inspired by that idea. And I love collaboration. Mm -hmm. It's been something um, my whole life. I've had fantastic collaborating teachers, my dear friend, Tony Gomes, um, Don Smith back at my first teaching job, Karen Page at my second teaching job, um, Jeremy Brown at University of Calgary, and here now the amazing Tristan de Borba um, mm-hmm. is is a, a colleague, and and many others. But but there are uh, people that I I've partnered with, and I I like that moment when we rub up against each other and we don't agree. And you're going to have to understand something differently. You're going to, have to change your point of view. Right. And I found that that has been probably the most common thing I've had to do <laughs> right. is to change the way I think yeah. to improve. Yeah. So next year, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, both of us are to be presenting at the Ontario Music Educator Conference, right. which is super exciting. And, um, and your topic is very exciting. And I was wondering, I'm not even going to say anything about it. Can you just tell us what it is and kind of how you got into it and, and all that stuff? Sure. Um, I, I didn't mention this earlier on. Um, I actually started two different other master's degrees before I finally finished one with the University <laughs> of Calgary. <laughs> Besides the Western, I also started a jazz master's degree at the Eastman School of Music. And I was playing trumpet and studying with a guy named Rayburn Wright, who was a jazz arranger from the United States. And I've always been fascinated by improvisation. Um, but I found that jazz as a form wasn't, wasn't feeding my soul in ways that I wanted it to be fed. Mm -hmm. So I made a decision again to move from the jazz and to focus exclusively on classical slash classical conducting. Um, But improvisation writ large, I think it's something that we need to do more in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. And the, the revelation of sound painting for me has been that it is a way for us to get every single person in an ensemble creating new music 
and that they don't have to be intimidated by that process. And yet at the same time, if you just look at a group of people and you say, okay, improvise, what do you right. get? A big cacophony of sound and noise and everybody going at once. Mm-hmm. With um, sound painting, I get to curate the creation of a brand new piece. I ask some people, I invite some people to create an accompaniment. I invite some, maybe all, to improvise at different points. We can change the style of, of music that is taking place. We can change the color, the texture, dynamic, everything. And it's all through using um, this system of sound painting, which is a, is a um, gestural language for live composition of improv- improvising musicians. So to me, it's an important pedagogical tool. And I'm, I'm hoping that the OMEA takes place next year because I'm going to go in and work with Andrew Virtue and, um, and students at Beale Secondary School for a few days before the actual um, oh, presentation. And then I'm going to bring the Beale Secondary School in and we're going to sound paint for the audience. Cool. And I have no idea what we're going to be able to <laughs> achieve in, in a couple of hours of rehearsal, a few hours of rehearsal. Right. But I'm excited by the possibility. And I'm also certain of one thing, and that is that kids don't want to just recreate, they want to create. And I think that that's a key part of pedagogy in, in the wind band world that we're missing. So mm-hmm. that's why it's there in my, in my life right now. I was supposed to be in, in Paris for the month of June, playing in Raphael Arditi's um, sound painting ensemble in Paris twice a week in performance. And then was going to go to Sweden to study with Walter Thompson again. But unfortunately, COVID-19 has put that on hold. Yes, COVID-19. Yep. Which, bring, which brings us to our, our next conversation topic. Um, yeah, a couple days ago, early this week, uh, we had a meeting of all the, well, not all, but a lot of the university uh, band directors from across uh, Canada and uh, Canadians who are teaching in the States as well. And uh, just to discuss, um, you know, possible scenarios um, for the fall when it comes to ensemble teaching um, in this COVID-19 crisis. And I was just wondering, uh, well, we've certainly had our fair share of uh, discussion on Friday about it, but uh, maybe talking about some of the the concerns um, and possible things that can happen uh, when it comes to, you know, even just the people who listen to this podcast, a lot of them are music teachers and how they might approach ensemble teaching um, and maybe some things that you're doing or planning to do. Hopefully, hopefully we don't have to do any of these things, um, right. but yeah, anyway. Um, well, I mean, personally for me, it, it was very inconvenient to be on sabbatical and have this happen, but that's really immaterial. The most mm-hmm. important thing is that it's, it's caused this disruption in delivery of program overall across the system. But um, I, I really worry and think late at nights about ensembles and ensembles making music together. There's been a flurry of activity of getting virtual ensembles online. Unfortunately, those experiences, you can't really consider authentic ensemble experiences um, they are still a solitary person with a set of headphones on listening to either a click or another performance of a piece of music mm-hmm. and trying to match their sound in that, that performance. Now that is a terrific skill. And there's a lot you can learn about being a musician there. And there are a few things about ensembling that you can learn from that, but it is in no way a replacement for the live in-person one-on-one breathe together to play together ensemble and the split second decision-making that it takes to be really good in an ensemble setting. Nor does it give you that in-person social joy that comes yeah. with 
the, the thing that I mentioned earlier on, that my inspiration for being here was suddenly stopping in the middle of a performance of Sibelius Symphony Number no. 2 while I'm in grade 10 or 11 and realizing that there's a miracle taking place. There are 100 musicians working together for the same goal. I don't think we can get that through virtual online mm -hmm. performances. But we have to do what we have to do to maintain our programs. One of the things that stuck in my mind when we had our discussion a couple of days ago is that for the big schools, for McGill and for University of Toronto and UBC, their ensemble programs, their principal applied majors, they're all in, they're all in place and they're going to work really well. Both of my ensembles rely on people outside of the, uh, the music area. They, they have biology majors and, and some really fine adult community musicians in them in order to make the mission of those ensembles take place. Right. Um, we're not going to have the, the same depth that will allow us to bounce back unless I can keep that ensemble mission alive during a time of either physical isolation or... Um, or physical distancing. And those are the two scenarios I think we're gonna face in the fall. Mm -hmm. The physical distancing one, I think we, um, we have a number of options. And um, personally, I'm exploring using acapella as a way of um, encouraging smaller groups of musicians to play off of and play with one another. For instance, I've, um, I'm devising a a lesson or game of some kind, you might call it an ensembling game right now where one player will, will perform a passage a certain. It's, it's no, no worries. It's like real life. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm forming an ensemble game where one player will play a, um, a, uh, a passage from a piece, their own part from a, a chamber work and then pass it on to somebody else and ask those people to play it in the character and style of that person and then get a different person to play their part, but play it with a different character or phrase intent and have everyone then go back through adding one voice at a time to match that particular style or character. So in that way, we're asking them to make a decision, stick to it, to be able to then with their instrument, create that phrase structure and that musical idea and then have others to be able to notice that and play with it. So it's, it's kind of ensemble music making only out of sync, out of time, shall we say with, with one another. Mm. And definitely the virtual ensemble is possible as well, but um, those projects are more showcase than they are actual um, ensemble teaching. Yeah. So there are challenges ahead, no doubt about it. Yeah, and I think, uh, at least from my own point of view, whenever we got there on Friday, uh, many of us just want, you know, some kind of black and white answer where we're going to do this. But kind of th through the discussion, I've, I've learned that it, no matter what we do as music educators, it's going to be kind of a, a collage of many different things to supplement um, this ensembling that kind of that you're talking about. And, and some of the most important stuff that I pulled away from Friday um, was certainly our role in the fall um, and as the, ex, the kind of the community that, that the students aren't getting from other courses um, was very, it was refreshing to hear from everyone. Um, and then also um, two things, one what, what Jillian was talking about where maybe it'd be a good idea if, if we, you know, survey our own students to see what, what they're missing, what they think they're missing because what we think and what they're thinking might be two different things. And um, so I think that's definitely an important thing. Um, but yeah, 
but thank you for all of that. It was I, I, some some useful things yeah. um, to think about going forward for sure. And then I sadly have to come to my last question. Well, the, the question is, um, if you had one piece of advice, I'll even, I've allowed people to in the past, uh, that you could give to um, upcoming music educators, what would it be? One piece of advice. Okay, two, maybe, okay, let's do two. No, really just one. You're right, no, no, you're, <laughs> no, you're right. There should be, it should be possible to encapsulate a lot of what we do. Um, so I think when I'm talking to high school students, as I do a lot about what they're doing now and what they want to do later, many of them have, um, have an impression of, of music making as a, uh, a lighthearted, um, activity that they get to do and maybe they'll someone will discover them and and they have a, a very pop music oriented approach to understanding what it means to be a musician mm -hmm. but in my experience um with knowing people in the pop music field and with people in jazz and people who are musicians in any field um it is going to be you you tend to do something the most when you love it a lot and you tend to therefore work at what you love. And through that work, you will change. If, if nothing else, there, change is the one constant we can all count upon. And we can either sit back and hold on to what we know now and hold on as tightly as we can so that during our time in, in the world, we will be this and we will have this one thing that we do and then we release it. Or we can embrace change and be on the front of it and we can adapt and work hard to understand what everyone else around us is trying to accomplish. And so if there is sort of one message there, it's that what you work at changes you and you should embrace that change. Because if you're working at it, and if you choose to work at something that you love, your life as a musician will never feel like work. Even when you're, you're trying to edit a, a podcast <laughs> because some guys had phones going off and dogs barking and, and stopped and stumbled and sworn a few times. Sorry about that. You know, going on their way through. Even if you end up having to do that, that work, even if right now we have to worry about virtual ensembles and those kinds of things, we work at it because we love the, the work and we love the people we get to work to meet and work with through that. And that's the, my main message is that it's about the love of the work and the love of the people. And that's probably the best the best career to have as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a, a beautiful way to, uh, to end, end the, end this podcast. Um, so from the bottom of my heart, I just want to thank you for taking the time to do this. And I, I was thinking the other day, if, if I went back in time and talked to little grade 10 Dylan and said, Hey, that guy right there, he's going to become a very important a friend. A friend and mentor to you. Uh, what would, what, what would he say? And, well, I, I think first of all, he'd say, don't talk to me, you're an adult. And then <laughs> second of all, what's a podcast? And then, then third of all, maybe. Wow, that's super cool. Um, so Mark, I just, I really want to thank you for, for your friendship, for your mentorship. Um, I, I often tell people, uh, now that I'm getting to tell younger people, um, what to do, not what to do, but how, what, maybe how to find ways inspiration. Ways to think of things, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Find, how, way, ways to find 
inspiration and improve yourself, one of the first things that I tell them is to find a mentor. And, and you to me, um, often when I get creatively low, I, I find myself, uh, you know, I don't really want to do this anymore. I'm running out of ideas. I get on the phone with you and you are Mr. Ideas. And just, just through talking to you and, and having discussion, it really, you know, revs me up and, and keeps me going, which is, you know, one of the most important roles of a mentor. So I'm incredibly grateful for, for you in my life. And, and thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk to us here in the band room. And I'm beyond positive that everyone will get something from this. Thank you, Dylan. That is incredibly generous, and I appreciate it. There you go. The last episode of the season. I would like to give a huge thank you to Dr. Mark Hopkins once again for taking the time to chat with us today. And thanks to all of you that could spend time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about today's episode, I have attached links to the show notes found on our website, our new website, www.bandroompod.com, where you can find out more about what we spoke about and the music used for today's episode. If you like what you heard... Make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast and give us a rating and a review and tell your friends how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, consider donating to our GoFundMe page, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even I'm thinking about TikTok, although I might be too old for that, I don't know where you can keep up with what's on the go. And if you have any thoughts on today's episode or thoughts about future episodes, leave me a comment on our website, or even cooler, leave me a voicemail on our new hosting website, anchor.fm slash bandroompod slash message. Stay safe, stay inside, wash your hands, and be well, bandies. And see you next time in the band room. Bandroom.